Holy Father, because of the risen Christ, ours is the cross, the grave, and the skies. And it is with that alleluia that we worship you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Teach us through that ancient story, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated, please. This last month, an 18-year-old wrote into Yahoo Answers. She had a question. She wanted the answer. I put, I put it exactly as she wrote it on the screen for you online. How can I get over my fear of death and live my life like I did before? Now it, death, is all I think about. Signed, only 18 in a frowny face. Many responded to her query, but Yahoo Answers, what they allow the asker to do is pick out the answer that most satisfied her. So, another young woman wrote this answer. Her name is Jamie, and I'll put her answer exactly as it appears online. Jamie writes, All people know they're going to die sometime. It's just a fact of life. I have accepted that it is inescapable. You have this one life, so... You're supposed to try to live it to the fullest. Don't think about death. Think about life and what you want to do with it. If you waste your time worrying about death, how are you going to live? Just forget about it and move on. If you seriously can't, then go see a psychiatrist. Tell them what you're dealing with. That's all I can tell you. Sign Jamie. To which the young 18-year-old respondent replied, Thank you. He'll try to do this. She's probably, she's probably more worried about failing spelling than uh, the approach of death. Is it only 18-year-olds who are afraid of death? Hmm? Or do we all drink the black milk of daybreak? In the middle of the last century, a young Jew, at the end of World War II, living in Bucharest, his name Paul Celan, wrote a haunting poem of the Holocaust and the death camps. And he entitled his poem, Death Fugue, one word. It begins with these words. Black milk of daybreak. We drink it at evening. We drink it at midday and morning. We drink it at night. We drink and we drink. We shovel a grave in the air. There you won't lie too cramped. Black milk of daybreak. That is one powerful descriptor, isn't it? Third millennials that we all are. Have we drunk the black milk of daybreak? How then shall we live? Let's turn to the Easter story. The one with the two earthquakes. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Put the title slide on the screen one last time because today is the last earthquake. Four times together this spring, you and I, under the the rubric of earthquake, have gone to Holy Scripture. Earthquake. God's seismic love for our broken planet. You didn't get the first three of these teachings? Listen, go to the website, www.pmchurch.tv. No study guide today. Don't worry about that. Go to that website. The podcast, the videocasts are all there. You can watch them in a row. Part four, the last earthquake. 
All right, so open your Bible to Matthew 27. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 27. You didn't bring a Bible? Grab the Pew Bible, please, right in front of you. You have to track the Easter narrative. It's page 672 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 27. Those of you watching on television, watching on live streaming right now, don't just take it off the screen. Get your Bible. Pull your Bible up. Join us. The Easter story. Two earthquakes. Matthew is the only gospel writer to record either one of them. Two earthquakes. We began the series with the first earthquake. We're going to go back there because there's a verse we left out when just a few weeks ago we began this mini-series together. So this is Matthew 27. Let's begin in verse 50. Matthew 27, verse 50. I'm in the New King James Version. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. No words given to this cry. One author describes this cry, you remember, if you heard the first part, as a shriek, shrill and agonizing. It's a death cry. He will expire at the end of this cry. So, verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit, breathed His last. Verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If it had been from bottom to top, a human could have done it. Too high a veil. Divine, divine shredding of that veil. The veil, was torn, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And then we left out verse 52 last time. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53, and coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. What baffles scholars and readers of Holy Scripture is this mysterious inclusion. Matthew's the only one who even gives, breathes the hint of this simultaneous to that death cry, the local cemetery bursting open. What's up with that? I mean, it's clear here that we have inanimate nature herself weeping, sobbing. The sun hides her face in shame. The earth heaves in sorrow when the seismic, the seismic death of her Creator. That's clear. But what's not clear to scholars, and even from the Greek, what's not clear is, did this earthquake raise them? Or did it just open their graves and they're raised at the second earthquake that we know is coming in chapter, chapter 28? We don't know. Isn't it amazing? That Matthew, before he even gets to the Easter story, he has this mysterious inclusion. He slips it in. Let me tell you about a resurrection that took place that nobody's talking about, but I'm going to tell you. Desire of Ages, that inspirational bestseller on the life of, life of Jesus. If you ever get the book Desire of Ages, hang on to it. Desire of Ages elaborates very briefly on this inserted mystery. I'll put the words on the screen for you. As Christ arose, all right, so this is two days later because this is Good Friday. He just died on Good Friday. Two days later, as Christ arose, He brought from the grave a multitude of captives. The earthquake at His death had rent open their graves, and when He arose, they came forth with Him. Now, hold on. They were those who had been co-laborers with God and who at the cost of their lives had borne testimony to the truth. They're martyrs. Now they were to be witnesses for Him who had raised Him from the dead. They ascended with Him as trophies of His victory over death in the grave. These went into the city and appeared unto many, declaring Christ has risen from the dead, and we be risen with Him. End quote. I have brooded over these, these couple verses for a long time. I've come to these two suppositions. Because of the quotation we just read, that these, were, that these ascended with Christ 
as the first fruits of His victory. I'm wondering if these aren't a part of those 24 elders, the human representatives in the kingdom of heaven who sit around the throne of God. 24 human representatives. Three of the names we know. It would have to be Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. Could these be the other 21 that He brings with Him that now take up their thrones around the throne of God? Curious, isn't it? Curious. But, because of that line, these at the cost of their lives gave testimony... I'm thinking martyrs. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were God and I wanted to alert the city that the Messiah has resurrected, do you know who I would resurrect? I would resurrect a man whose head had been cut off. And I'd send John the Baptist straight into that city because everybody knew the Baptist. And they would believe. They would believe when he appeared and said, I am alive today. Christ has risen. Wouldn't that be something? I hope John got that call. There's no way to know for sure. Earthquake 1. At the death cry of the Creator of the universe, Mother Earth crumbles in deep and mournful grief. And as Desire of Ages puts it, put this on the screen for you, that voice that cried from the cross, It is finished was heard among the dead, it pierced the walls of sepulchers, and summoned the sleepers to arise, end quote. Look at, ladies and gentlemen, even in death, Jesus wins. Hallelujah. Even in death, He wins. By the way, that ought to be true for you too. When your death comes, and it will, if He doesn't come soon enough, it's coming for you and me. When our moment of death comes in Christ, we still win. Never forget it. All right, that's earthquake one. We've got to go to earthquake two. Let's pick it up. Verse one of chapter 28. Everybody knows this story, the Easter story. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Verse two. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Verse 3, his countenance was like the lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Verse 4, and the guard shook. By the way, that word for shook is the verb to earthquake. That's how bad they were shaken. And the guards, Matthew says, like an earthquake, shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I mean, you picture this moment. Go ahead and try to picture it. The black milk of daybreak. It's darker than Hades. Right now, around that sealed sepulcher. Who do you suppose is there? Come on, you know who's there. Pacing back and forth with his minions. The fallen angels who joined the insanity of his, of his rebellion against the monarch of the universe. Satan is there. Lucifer, the fallen Satan. Pacing. Pacing. Keep an eye on that corpse. The body of the deceased. Nobody touches it, human or divine. Do you understand? Nobody. The guard has been posted, marshaled the army of darkness. This morning when we were singing, I just love that hymn, Charles Wesley's hymn, Christ the Lord has risen today. And when we were singing it this morning, I, we, I came to stanza three and I grabbed my pen. I'd forgotten those words. Death in vain forbids him rise. I scribbled it down here in my notes. He's going to hold him. Hold your ground. Nobody takes this body. It belongs to me now. Desire of ages. 
draws a veil aside. Put the words on the screen for you. There were unseen watchers. The black milk of daybreak. There were unseen watchers. Hosts of evil angels were gathered about the place. Had it been possible, the prince of darkness with his apostate army would have kept forever sealed the tomb that held the Son of God. But a heavenly host, hallelujah, but a heavenly host surrounded the sepulcher. Chariots of fire, there they are. You didn't think they'd be missing today, did you? Chariots of fire. But a heavenly host surrounded the sepulcher. Angels that excel in strength were guarding the tomb and waiting to welcome the Prince of Life. End quote. This winter I went out running, you know, running when it's pitch dark out there. I love a shooting star, don't you? I just love, but I got two of them. And I looked up and down and said, there went another one. I try to imagine this angel. This obviously has to be the angel that took the place of fallen Lucifer. The highest angel in the ranks of eternity. This angel, like a meteor, explodes in white light. And every observer, human, angelic, or divine, every observer sees him like lightning. Ah, I love this. Look at this. I'll put it back on the screen for you. The earth trembles at this highest of angels. I'm going to tell you now that I believe it's Gabriel, and I'm going to prove it to you in just a moment. I believe it's Gabriel. I'll show you. The earth trembles at his approach. The hosts of darkness flee. Now, the very next page, so I inserted it right here in Desire of Ages. The very next page, Satan was bitterly angry when his angels fled at the approach of the heavenly messenger. I commanded you to stay. Where did you go? Hold the ground. Too late. They're gone. And as he, this descended angel, as he rolls away the stone, isn't this beautiful? Heaven seems to come down to the earth. The soldiers see him removing the stone as he would a pebble. And they hear him cry, Son of God, come forth. Thy Father calls thee. And they see Jesus come forth from the grave. They look on the face Two days ago into which they expectorated and spit. And he comes with the tread of a mighty conqueror. No wonder they, they pass out as dead. They see Jesus come forth from the grave and hear him proclaim over the rent sepulcher. I love this. I am the resurrection and the life. As he comes forth in majesty and glory, the angel host, can't you picture them? By the thousands, they all bow. They bow to their knee. They're in the presence of their creator and commander. The angel host bow low in adoration before the Redeemer and they welcome Him with songs of praise. You're not surprised at that, are you? I mean, did they sing when He was born? Did they have the greatest choir in the history of the universe when he was born? Don't you suppose they assembled the very same choir for the moment of his resurrection? And they burst into song. Unbelievable. Wow. As I brooded over this passage this last week, something occurred to me that I had never seen before. Look what Gabriel's doing. You know, in verse 2, he, he comes down, boom, explosion, the earth shakes, lightning. He rolls the stone away like a pebble. You remember that? 
But notice Gabriel's posture now. Where is he standing or sitting? What did you just read? Verse 2, where is he? What's he sitting on? He's sitting on the stone. Now, why would an angel full of decorum, a polite angel, be sitting on a stone? Reminds me of... I'm sorry to do this, but it's the only way I can grasp it. Kind of humanize him for a moment. He reminds me of a little kid that has just whooped the neighborhood bully. And he's backed up to that stone. You know how you get onto a fence that's behind you? You put your hands behind you, you go, whoosh. He's up on that fence and he's kicking his feet. As if he were saying, I dare you. I dare you. I imagine him. God forgive me, Gabriel. I imagine him looking into that black milk of daybreak. Yo! Loose! I know you're out there. I can see you. Lucifer. You thought that by killing our king, you would win. You lose. You played straight into the Father's victorious hand. And because you killed him, we win. You've lost, Lucifer. Yo, and your greatest, your greatest weapon, what is it? Death. Yeah, death. Hey, Lucifer, what am I sitting on? This is the door to a grave. Take a look. Look, 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 look. The door is open. And the grave is empty. Oh, when I saw that this week, that has to be an angelic posture of defiance to evil. We win. Wow. Wow. Oh, death, be not proud. Be not proud. Pick it up again in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Verse 3, His countenance was like lightning and His clothing as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of Him and became like dead men. Finally, the black milk of daybreak takes over again. The lights go out. Jesus is gone. Gabriel still sitting there on the stone with wobbly legs, petrified with fear, these burly legionnaires stumble back to Jerusalem, the first to tell the good news. But, verse 5, Gabriel stays there because some friends of Jesus are coming. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. By the way, hit the pause button right there. That's why I know it's Gabriel. Because Luke tells us all about Gabriel. Gabriel shows up with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He shows up with Virgin Mary. He shows up with the, eight, with the shepherds out in the field. And all three times in Luke's account, guess what the first words out of Gabriel's mouth are? Do not be afraid. It's Gabriel. It's Gabriel. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, He's not here, for He is risen. As he said, come, 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 come. See the place where the Lord lay? Verse 7, and go quickly now 
Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with, with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they round an unexpected corner as big as life itself, guess who's standing in the middle of the road? Look at that, verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them and he said, Rejoice! So they came and they held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and sisters to go to Galilee. There they will see Me. Two identical earthquakes, two identical commands, one Easter story. What's up with that? The resurrection angel, the resurrected Savior, issue the same resurrection imperative. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know what? I'm not surprised. Really, I'm not surprised that Gabriel's first words and, and Christ's first words would be, do not be afraid. Because as it turns out, that command is God, one of God's favoritest commands in all the Bible. Fifty times in the, in the New King James, fifty times in the Bible, God says, do not be afraid. Ten more times He says, fear not. God is big on telling us, you don't have to be afraid. Sixty times in the Bible. Mercy. But, here's the question. Do not be afraid of what? There's no word here. It doesn't tell us what not to be afraid of. It just says, do not be afraid. They say the most common fear Americans have is the fear of public speaking. I know a little bit about that fear. I live with it all the time. Is that the fear that he's talking about here? No. The Bible says, that's not the greatest, that's not the greatest fear that the human race has. I want to show you what the Bible says is our greatest fear. And don't look it up because I want you to read it from the NIV. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Take a look at this. Since the children, that would be you and me, since the children have flesh and blood, He, Jesus, He too shared in their humanity, our humanity, so that by His death, oh, I love this, by His death, He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He broke the devil. He broke the devil. You lose, Lucifer. He broke the devil. And when he broke the devil, what did Jesus do? Uh, isn't this something else? That he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Hands down, the human race's number one fear is the fear of dying. It's the fear of death. We all have drunk the black milk of daybreak. All of us. Not just the 18-year-old, that little girl who wrote into Yahoo Answers, how can I get over my fear of death and live, and live my life like I did before? Now death is all I think about. Hey, 18, 28, 48, 78, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. The black milk of daybreak. You have tasted it. You know it well. It's like the English poet Alan Seeger put it. We all have a rendezvous. Remember Seeger's poem? He ended up dying in World War II. Just a young man. I have a rendezvous with death 
at some disputed barricade when spring comes round with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. We all have a rendezvous with death. We know it. We try to laugh ourselves out of forgetting, into forgetting, eat ourselves, entertain ourselves, occupy ourselves. But we know we're going to die. We know we are going to die. It's no wonder death is our greatest fear. It's no wonder also the twin imperative of the resurrection story. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But here's the question. How not to be afraid? That's what I want to know. How not to be afraid? I want to suggest to you that the, that the solution that you're needing right now, and so am I, the solution we need for not being afraid is found right here in the Easter story. I want you to think back to those visitors who came to the tomb that early morning. You think about it. Remember when the women come? What does Gabriel say to them? Do not be afraid. Doesn't he say do not be afraid to them? He did. So, they, they turn around in verse 8 and they run. But do you notice? did you notice what it says when they ran? They ran with fear. They ran with fear and great joy. Gabriel's command was insufficient to take away their fear. They round a corner. They meet the risen Christ. He says the same words. And what do they do? Now, here's the key. What do they do when they meet the risen Christ? They fall at His feet and what? And what? And worship. They worshiped Him. That's the key. Divine worship diffuses human fear. That's how it works. Divine worship diffuses human fear. When in the face of your fears you bow at His feet, something happens to fear that transforms it into faith. I mean, it's Job all over again. Job who literally loses everything. But what happens to him? He's lost it all. And yet Job can say, Though he slays me, yet will I what? Yet will I trust him. Fear is dissipated into faith. Divine worship dissipates human fear. Now, our boy, when he was growing up, Kurt, growing up in our house, he used to wear these T-shirts all over the house. Two words on them. No fear. No fear. You accept Jesus, the risen Christ, as your Lord and your forever friend. And I'm telling you what, my friend, in the face of your fears, if you will bow at His feet, fear will dissipate into faith. And you can live your life no fear. Divine worship diffuses into diffuses human fear. Diffuses it. You say, what fear? Any fear. How many fears? All fears. How about the fear of my how about the fear of my marriage? Collapsing and we're going to end up in a divorce court in a matter of weeks. How about that fear, Dwight? Yep, that fear too. I was with a friend of mine. We were together out of town when his wife left him. Just left him. Up and gone. I've watched God rebuild that life. It's a mighty life for God today. Even in the meltdown of marital fracture. The earthquake of marital stress. No fear. See how do I? I'm failing. I'm this close to the end. I'm this close to the end. And I'm failing at the university. I'm going to have to rewrite my ticket to the future. I'm afraid there's nothing I can do in this life. Oh, my friend, that fear. He's good for that fear. I was talking to, a, I was talking to someone this week 
who has been through a huge personal meltdown. Meltdown. And he was telling me, he was telling me, Dwight, on one occasion, I had, to, I had to do something, and I knew I could not do it. I was paralyzed by that fear. And then he said, it was just like out of the blue. A verse just popped into my mind. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that verse, he said, Dwight, that verse has become my mantra. I can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I tell you what, you're looking at career failure. You're looking at academic failure. You're looking at uh, what failure? Any failure. There's somebody who steps beside you and can dissipate your fear into faith. Fear of the future? Yep. Fear of disease? Yep. Fear of death? Yep. All fears. Any fear you mention. Divine worship diffuses human fear. When in the face of your fears... You kneel at His feet. The mystery of your fear dissipating into faith. You will see. I promise you. I'm about to tell you a story that happened to me. I now know it is true. So here's what you do. Here's your Easter prescription. Every morning, now that Easter's here and new life has sprung out, every morning, you're alone with Jesus, the risen Christ. Every morning, one story from the Gospels. That's all you do. One story. Worship Him who made you. Worship the Savior. Every morning, alone in the Gospels, one story, you worship Him. And any fear, I promise you, any fear that is clutching you now will be released. Divine worship diffuses human fear. I promise you. How can you be so bold, Dwight, as to promise? Because I know what happened to me a few weeks ago. I didn't want, I didn't want to tell you this story. I wasn't going to tell you this story until Katrina Blue came to me. She said, Dwight, you need to share this testimony at House of Prayer. So I shared it briefly at House of Prayer. People said, you know what? You need to share it with everybody. I debated it. But I'm going to share the story with you. It's a personal testimony. You remember our, our, our South Bend meetings, I, I Perceive? You remember those I Perceive meetings just a few weeks ago? Back in February. Not a ten lectures. I mean, full court press. I was so relieved when that Saturday, Saturday night was over. This is the Sunday after the end of South Bend's I Perceive meetings. And I'm lazing around the house. I'm taking my shower in the afternoon. And I'm putting on my deodorant. Now, you know I'm not in the habit of telling you when I put on deodorant. It's none of your business when I do that. I'm putting on my deodorant just like this. And I'm looking at my arm. Whoa! What's up with that? I put this arm up. Whoa. So I go out to Karen. She's in the living room. I say, hey, love, look at this. She says, whoa, what's up with that? She says, you're going to the doctor tomorrow, President's Day. I wanted the day off. You're going to the doctor first thing in the morning. I go to the doctor, great doc, right here. And he looks at it, he feels it. He aspirates it. That means you put a needle in and suck out what's ever there. Come back in 48 hours. I want to check it again. Came back in 48 hours. Says still the same size. I thought maybe it might be a blood clot. It would be you know, diminishing. Maybe you injured yourself or something. Same size. Says come back in a week. I came back in a week. Felt it again. It's the same size. He said, hey, you're going to a surgeon. The office there set me up for a surgeon Friday morning, 9 o'clock. Now that Friday is before the huge Sabbath, March 5 here, where we're going to make an appeal for missionaries to come forward. And you came forward. And we have this big celebration of synergy 
Sabbath afternoon with a potluck sandwich, uh, dinner and all that. I mean, it's just a big day. And my mind is on that day. And I go in to see the surgeon. Great surgeon, by the way. I go in to see the surgeon. He looks at it. Hmm. I said, what do you think it is? This, this is bad news, isn't it? He said, why? Don't get so excited. What's the problem? We need to take some pictures of it. Can you get over to the hospital right away and take a CAT scan? I said, I'll go. It's a busy morning, but I'll go. He called over to the hospital. We'll take him right now. Went over to the hospital. They shot a CAT scan. Inject, you know. He said, the, 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 doc, the surgeon said, I'll call you back in two or three hours. We'll have a better idea of what we're dealing with. Two, three hours later, he calls back on my cell. He says, Dwight, talk to the radiologist. That's not a blood clot. That's some sort of mass inside of you. I tell you what. You're thinking the worst, of course. And then he told me, I've called, and he named the the cancer. I've called this clinic at the University of Chicago, and I've run by the protocol with them, and they say it's okay if I do the surgery. And the moment he named the clinic, I said, that's what's up. Doctors never like to give you the bad news. They just kind of wait. Saw my family physician here. Pretty much saying the same thing. And I tell you what, guys. They said, okay, we'll do the surgery Monday morning. Friday night, we're having worship. Karen and me sitting at the little piano where we sit every Friday night to sing songs out of the whatever songbook we have in front of us. And I'm looking in the reflection on this upright, and I can see her face, and I can tell that she is being moved. I'm, the music is getting to me. But I'm trying to hide it. And I'm looking at her, and she's acting. She's, the music is affecting her. And I finally look over at her and I said, You know what, love? I'm not dead yet. What's the problem here? <laughs> I tell you, it was 72 hours. Un- un- unbelievable 72 hours. I had to get up and preach two Sabbaths, two sermons right here. My heart is just, my heart is just choked. I have no clue what's going to happen. Big celebration in the afternoon. I call the staff in. I say, hey guys, we can't have staff on Monday. I've got to have surgery. I told them what I knew. They made a circle around me, put their hands on me, and prayed. Sunday was a beautiful day. Got in a car. I'm thinking, this is it. This is just it. This is how it happens. I've always wondered how it happened, but this is how it happens. You just do something for the last time. We're going to drive in this car. I don't know where we're going, but we're going to enjoy the sunshine. We'll go out and get a bite to eat, and that's it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. Early Monday morning, I got up. I went down to my little prayer closet. And I went before God. And I wasn't cutting deals with Him. No deals, God. I'm not, I'm not going to play that game with you. I just want you to make this turn out. And I got down there and I worshipped. And I don't, I don't even know what it was I was worshipping around. But I'm in prayer and I'm saying, please, whatever it is, just your grace be sufficient. And I'm here to tell you that divine worship diffuses human fear. I walk out of that prayer closet, change my clothes, shower, shave, get ready to drive into the hospital. And I, 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 surprised, I, was, I surprised myself. I said, what's up with this? I, I'm just calm. People are praying. I'm calm. I walk in. Say goodbye to the family for a bit. They make you wear these funny clothes. You go in behind there and they change clothes. Anesthesiologist came in. We get to talking and bantering around. 
And he comments, what's up with this? I don't know. I just was calm. Looking at the ceiling, wheeled down the corridor to the amphitheater. Divine worship diffuses human fear. I don't care how it turns out. It still diffuses human fear. It doesn't guarantee the outcome. Well, if I worship God in this way, whoop, He'll change it. No, it doesn't work that way. Divine worship diffuses human fear. Surgery's two and a half hours or whatever. Cut down to the shoulder blade. Pulled out that growth. Surgeon came in back when I was awake. Well, no, in 24 hours. Tuesday, 24 hours later, 1230 afternoon, my cell phone rings. It's the surgeon. I pick up the phone. He says, Dwight, got the lab back, the path, pathology back. It's not cancer. And I'm telling you what. I'm telling you what. I looked out the window. It had been a blue sky before, but nothing like the blue of the sky right now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I had been preparing myself to die And God had been preparing me to live. And when that was over, you know what I said to God? You got it. You have all of me. We cut no deals. But I'm giving you everything I have. Anything you want, you name the price. I'm yours. Divine worship diffuses human fear. And Jesus is the greatest antidote to fear I have ever met in my whole little life. Stay close to Jesus. Some of you are getting ready to leave. You're going, graduate, you're leaving us. We'll miss you. Stay close to Jesus. No matter what life brings to you, stay close to Him. The worst fears you can imagine. He's already made preparation. You'll be okay. The reason I hesitated to tell this story, to be honest with you, is because I have friends and colleagues right here. I talked to one of them between services who didn't get the phone call I got. Who got the phone call that said, are you holding on to your seat? Because the fight of your life has just begun. And they are fighting with everything they have. I don't know why I got the phone call that says, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Divine worship diffuses human fear. Before you even know the answer, I'll take it away. You'll be okay. You'll be okay.